The views and opinions expressed by the individuals in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of its producers, Metaphor Creative Media, its management, or affiliates. Police officers were witness to some of the most amazing things in life. Some comical, some horrendous, and some just plain miraculous. When asked why you went into law enforcement, most officers will tell you because it's like having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Today, we saved you a front row seat. This is Observations. From Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida, Metaphor Creative Media presents a show that gives you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers see and do in their typical and not-so-typical day of work. From walking the beat to detective, Rob has 35 years of law enforcement experience. Although the staff are all active or former law enforcement, any views, opinions, and all other show content are in no way official views, statements, or policies of any law enforcement agency. To talk to our host, call the podcast studio toll-free at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. Hello again, and welcome to Observations, your front row seat to the greatest show on earth. I'm Rob, your host. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that we broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. from the Broadcast Beat Studios located in Oakland Park, Florida. Here on Observations, we attempt to give you a glimpse of what law enforcement officers do on a daily basis. We'll also talk about recent happenings and the latest topics pertaining to law enforcement that not only affect officers, but the general public as well. In law enforcement, the color of the uniform does not define the officer. We all have the same mission, to protect and serve the citizens and communities we patrol. More importantly, our mission is to go home at the end of the day. Unfortunately, in our profession, not everyone gets to go home which was the case just last week right here in our own community where Brad County Sheriff Benjamin Nitz was laid to rest after being killed in the line of duty on July 21st, leaving behind a wife and two young children. Our prayers are with the Nitz family. This is why so many officers live by the motto, it's better to be tried by 12 than to be carried by six. Last week I had the pleasure of having Richie with me. I was hoping he would be back this week, continue the conversation, but unfortunately he had prior commitment. One of the things Richie mentioned, which rings true, is that some parents threaten their misbehaving children with arrest when they see a uniformed officer or threaten to have them taken away. This only instills a fear of the police and teaches them to be wary of law enforcement, which is what we don't want. On the other hand, recently it was alleged that the Chicago Chamber of Commerce hosted an event which small children were giving sticks and encouraged to beat a pinata that resembled an ICE agent. What the, what the hell were they thinking? What are they teaching their children? It wasn't cute or amusing. So recently in the news also, there was a fourth person that was arrested in connection with the NYPD's officers being subjected, subjected to having water dumped on them. This display of actions is a front not only to the police, but also to every law-abiding citizen. Recently, a Republican from Long Island wanted to make dousing water on uh, police officers punishable by up to four years and make it a Class E felony. He also stated that what we witnessed was disgraceful. 
to show such little respect for our brave police officers is abhorrent, but speaks to the bigger issue of how poorly they are treated in the mainstream media and under the de Blasio administration. The assemblyman said, and I quote, if this was the mayor or some other elected official having water thrown on them while trying to work, there would be national outrage and the offenders would be locked up. These men and women go to work each day to protect our communities, unsure if they will return home to their families. They should be treated with the utmost respect and dignity by all. Also recently in the news this past weekend, NYPD officers had bottles thrown at them at the Bronx when they were trying to break up a large fight. In a second incident, there was a chunk of concrete also thrown at officers while in Central Park. There were no injuries reported on that. In the Bronx, uh, one of the gentlemen, this James Anvisons, was arrested after he threw several bottles at the police officers. The officers were treated for minor injuries. In the second incident, none of the officers were injured when concrete was thrown at them. There are no suspects, and the investigation is continuing at this time. You know, what's going on in the news is... Uh, it's, it's crazy, the abuse that the police are forced to take and the, sometimes the lack of reaction, uh, you know, people just can't understand it. And, you know, times are crazy. What people have to understand, the police are the thin blue line standing between good and evil, civility and chaos. And if people feel that they can attack the police in this fashion without fear of consequence, God help you, the general public. Most people don't realize the wide range of incidents that we handle daily and the effects they cause on us every day. What's more disturbing to me than anything else these days is the increase in police suicide. It's a very big problem. It seems to be growing. This year, so far, the New York City Police Department has experienced seven uh, suicides, with five occurring in the last two months. It's unfortunate, but unfortunately for me, I knew one of those officers, Detective Joseph Calabrese. I went to school with Joe, and he became a police officer shortly before I did. Over the years, our paths would cross, and Joe, Joe was a great guy. He was very involved with the union, um, was always willing there to help out people. He was a family man, and will be, uh, definitely he'll be missed. Unfortunately, he didn't get the help for himself. Nobody knows the demons that people are struggling with. Also recently, there was an off-duty NYPD transit sergeant who was found with a self-inflicted gun wound in Staten Island. He was found after his coworkers became worried that he didn't show up for work. You know, this was all during the summer. As law enforcement officers, we respond and witness some of the most tragic events that happen in our communities. We go to work every day and have to deal with everyone's problems, then go home and have to handle our own. On this job, stress can have a significant impact on physical and mental well-being, which can accumulate over the course of a career. Many officers, unfortunately, struggle with alcohol abuse, depression, and suicidal thoughts post-traumatic stress disorders, and other challenges. What I want to do is like to say, state a couple of facts pertaining to police suicide. Nearly one in four police officers has thoughts of suicide at some point in their life. The officer's suicide rate is four times higher than that of firefighters. In the smallest departments, this increases almost four times the national average. More officers have been killed by suicide or taking their own lives than in the line of duty. There were an estimated 140 police suicides in 2017 compared to 129 in the line of duty deaths. Compared to the general population, law enforcement reports much, report much higher rates of depression, PTSD, burnout, and other anxiety-related issues. 
You know, oftentimes as police officers, we counsel people. We refer them to help, uh, different help, psychological help, marriage counselors. But for some reason, we don't do it for ourselves. I don't know if it's because we see ourselves as the problem solvers or afraid it'll be a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I, I ask everybody out there, all law enforcement, all first responders, if you find yourself experiencing similar effects or if you feel you're in a dark place with no way out, there's help out there. Pick up the phone, call up one of your brothers or sisters in blue. And guys, if you see a change in behavior, somebody that you work with, if they're not acting the same, if they become uh, withdrawn and they're just not acting normally, ask, hey, is everything okay? Ask a question. Lend a shoulder, you may save a life. There are many organizations out there for everybody. One is PAPA, and it's, it's for all police officers. And you can call 888-COPS-COPS or 888-267-7267. The lines are manned 24-7. Uh, if you can't get through there, ask, ask a union rep. Everybody's out there to help you. You don't have to suffer in silence. With that being said, tonight we're going to be talking about death. Unfortunately, police officers deal with it day in and day out. We all meet up with it one way or another. How we get there is an entirely different question. So uh, it becomes routine, just like anything else. Anything that we do becomes routine, and we kind of become numb to it. You know, when I, let me get back to a second. I think one of the problems that police officers have not asking for help, it used to be taboo to ask for help to seek uh, for assistance. A lot of officers were afraid that if they had a problem, they admitted they had a psychological problem or it was a depression, automatically their guns would be taken away and they would be confined to desk duty. Thankfully, it's not the case anymore. That's a thing of the past. Tonight, I have a guest with me, Fred. Fred's a retired New York City police officer and came from a different department originally. It's originally. funny, back, back in the day, the New York City the Police Department was comprised of three departments. The NYPD was the umbrella for the housing police and the uh, transit police. And then it was years later, there was a merge where everybody fell under the one umbrella. We all put the same patch on, yeah. That's right. Fred, when did you start your law enforcement career? Uh, 1990. Okay, and like I ask everybody, what was your reason for getting involved in law enforcement? My father was a corrections officer, so it was a kind of a strict, strict upbringing. Um, and I don't know, it was just uh, my uncle was a police officer in New Jersey. I think uh, a lot of us just come from, uh, you know, those blue-collar families where it's, it was either law enforcement or firefighter. I ended up choosing law enforcement, or it chose me. However. Yeah, some people say it's a calling, you, you know. Um, some people get into it for the wrong reason, and... Uh, some people, it's a, it's a calling. It's, it's a job that I've always felt satisfying and never worried about going to work. It, was, it wasn't something where I, I hated my job. Or I, I don't want to go to work because I, I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, you had, it was, it was the great part of it was uh, every day was different. And, you know, there was always opportunities to help people, which, which made you feel good. Like you said, it wasn't all, it, w it wasn't always just about arresting people. And, no, it and wasn't. And doing bad things. It's, it's, you helped people. You uh, helped, you got to see people at the worst uh, times of their uh, life sometimes absolutely at the worst times and the best times yeah and you know every day every day was an adventure you never knew what you were getting into mm -hmm. absolutely so in 1990 uh, at that time was it still three separate departments or was yes it the merge yes three separate departments okay I think, uh, 
somehow they had some formula to break it up. Uh, housing and transit got a small portion of the list, and then the bulk of the list would go to NYPD. Okay. And you went to housing? Well, that's where I was sent. <laughs> what, I, they, that's, that's, that they showed up. They said, oh, you're housing, and okay, I just let me see this through and see what it was like. And it was a, a extremely different world for me. I grew up in Staten Island, right? Uh, basically the suburbs, and uh, very, very little exposure to that, that the projects, let's say. Um, you know, we had them on Staten Island, but it was, uh, you don't go over there. Right. You know? So uh, once I started working in the projects, it was, uh, it was just extremely different. Um, the job itself, the housing, uh, it was, maybe we had 3,500 cops uh, at the time. So it was a smaller, had a family feel to it. Everybody kind of knew everybody, and um, the uh, older guys always looked out for us, you know. Uh, it wasn't so much getting thrown to the wolves, but uh, it was a maybe a faster-paced, uh, just a faster-paced uh, process, I think. Uh, we would, you had the opportunity to handle more jobs, right. usually, in a, in a day. Well, it's funny that you say that. <laughs> Because it was, it was constantly, it's a joke, and I, mean, I know you've heard it before. Oh, housing is uh, housing unavailable. unavailable. <laughs> housing <Yeah>. unavailable. Transit <laughs> yeah. unavailable. You know, I started in 84, and it was the three different departments, um, NOA PD. And we had the projects. I was in Coney Island, so we had the Marlboro projects. We had mm-hmm. the Surfside projects, a lot of projects. And then we had the transit. And there were times where if housing wasn't available, they would send us into housing. Right. And if transit wasn't available, they would send us into transit. And if we weren't available, the job would hold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your, your precinct is in backlog. Right. But I, what I also found out also was housing and transit were well-kept secrets. You know, it's, at least I thought so. They were, it was a much friendlier atmosphere. I know in New York, when you came into the precinct, and anybody who's been on the job in New York can tell you, when you came into the precinct, you stood in front of a desk, and you, you spoke to the sergeant over the desk. When I remember going into one of the PSAs. It was a PSA 1. Mm-hmm. going in and oh, the cops weren't on the opposite they were all behind the desk yeah you know it, it was friendly yeah it, it was much friendlier yeah it was a little more relaxed I think um, I hated going into a precinct in the beginning uh, there was just that animosity when we walked in uh, most of the time the desk sergeant or the lieutenant really didn't want to know what we were coming in there for you, you know they always thought we were bringing trouble or a problem in, right. you know Intrig- whether it was just to drop something off maybe a mail run or something <clears throat> you feel like you were treated like second class citizens yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because in my mind, it was, uh, at the time, we had different patches. Mm-hmm, yeah. But we, but we all did the same job. You know, we were all police officers and all New York City police officers. We'd have people come up to us. We'd, they'd, they'd flag us down on the street in the car, and they'd come up to us and look, and then you'd get that weird look in their eye, and they're like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I wanted a real cop. <laughs> yeah, okay, have a nice day. I'm going to go about my business now. All right. <laughs> You know, I came down to uh, South Florida in 2001. I was doing my my training. I went to a housing location. And I remember one of the guys I was with was telling me, and I don't remember the exact location, but, you know, this is housing. It's, it's not good here. And I looked. Right down here in Florida. Yeah, and I looked. And I said, are you crazy? This is beautiful. I I've, seen, I've seen some places, guys, like, oh, you would never want to work. That'd, that'd be like a working vacation in some of the areas. I, that was one of the things. I, I never looked at going uh rolling over is what we used to call it i never looked at the rolling over because i don't know that i would have been able to behave or operate in in a a more subtle environment like typical neighborhoods that i grew up in if i had to go be a cop there i'm not sure i mean we mostly we were handling a lot of family disputes right 
And uh, unfortunately, you just got to go in there and, you know, you got to be the judge and the punisher and decide who's right, who's wrong. You know, have to, not everybody needs to go to jail after a family fight, but right. you know, why do I have to be here? Why are you arguing over this, you know? A lot of it was nonsense, unfortunately, today now. Uh, with the things with family disputes, a lot of our discretion is gone. Yeah. You know, and I'm saying even prior to the body-worn cameras, there was a time you'd go to a family dispute, and we all have problems. Everybody mm -hmm. can relate to financial issues or health issues or infidelity. Um, but it, there was a point you were able to tell somebody, hey, go take a walk, come back in an hour. Yeah. Pull off, come back in an hour. And now that discretion is gone. It's... Uh, uh, Oh, he what? He he slapped you? And, oh, and yeah, the right, domestic abuse. Somebody's uh, going to jail. Yeah, that that definitely escalated. And even when I I was retired in 2001, <clears throat> but even back then, uh, domestic abuse was was a, a big issue. It was a hot button issue, and and you know a lot of discretion was taken out of uh, out of everyone's hands with that. All right. You know what I'd like to talk about tonight is the active shooters. Mm -hmm. Okay, it seems that they're on the increase. They're definitely on the rise. Just recently in El Paso, Texas, 22 people were killed and an additional 26 were injured. And the uh, law enforcement response was incredible. It was just phenomenal. I, I mean, it's one for the record books how they were able to take this person into custody so quickly without even firing a round. Yeah. It was just absolutely uh, incredible. You know, unfortunately, less than 24 hours later, there was another active shooter in Dayton, Ohio. And... This guy came prepared. I mean, he was dressed in body armor, and he, he was on a mission. Yeah, he and, was. Uh, he even shot his own sister yeah, at the beginning is, of it, I think, which is really bizarre. And, and a friend. There was yeah, a friend yeah, in the there there's three of them, the two of them. Yeah, he went, he went into a ball with the two of them. It was just absolutely uh, amazing. Um, it's hard to figure the rationale. I don't, I don't think you can really... No, you, you can't. You don't you know can't what goes. understand what's going on through their mind. Th through the minds of people. How is this a viable solution? or How, how is this even an option, you know? Things have gotten this bad. That and the amazing thing in Dayton that the police response was less than a minute. I think they were all nearby. on the scene. It was like, like a working detail almost because it was a, a nightlife uh, kind of spot. So that was that was good. But even still, he, he was able to get a shoot a fair amount of people with them with them being on him right away. It, it was amazing. You know. He was determined. You know, and unfortunately, this is the uh, 251st mass shooting in the United States this year. And every time one of these uh, horrific incidents happens, you know, this calls go out and the cries go out for gun control, gun control, gun control, gun control. And I agree with gun control, but not the way people are screaming about it because yeah. it's not realistic. They just want to wipe everything off the board. And it's not always a gun problem. It's a, it's a people problem, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, there should definitely be uh, stricter background checks, uh, possibly a mandatory psychological evaluation before they give it. You know, and there'll be outcry. People will, will fight that. Um, you know, you, you try to think of a solution, you know, but that, that might be one thing. You know, anybody who's diagnosed with a mental disorder should definitely or, or cannot get a firearm. Um, you know, an another thing is registration of firearms. Okay, it's, it's very weak, you know, the registration. Some states you don't have to register them at all. Some you, some you do. But you have to register your car. Right. Exactly. You know, I don't mind the registration part. Is just don't charge me two hundred dollars for the sake of putting my name on a list. Right. You know, you, it has to be a fair thing about it. And agencies need to be a, not not just police agencies, but other agencies in general need to be a little more proactive about it. Uh, Nicholas Cruz, uh, the uh, incident that happened down here at Stoneman Douglas. 
it's you know it's come to light. He was in a lot of trouble for a long time. He was a he was a problem for right. a long time, and everybody just kept sweeping it under the carpet. Yeah, definitely. You know, they were afraid of slapping a label on somebody or putting a stigmatism on someone. Listen, if something's going wrong, then something's going wrong. It has to be addressed. Absolutely, at the very least, it has to be fully investigated. You know, um, and the thing is, gun sales. You know, there are states where there, there's really no regulations with gun sales. Right. You know, I, I could sell one to Joe Schmo. Mm-hmm. As long as he gives me the money, you know, maybe another alternative, and I'm sure people won't be happy with it, is to possibly make all gun sales go through a middleman, a licensed middleman. I, I think that's a fair option. I'm not a licensed dealer, you know. Um, again, I'm not going out doing bad things with weapons, so I don't, I don't have a problem with having to buy it legally, right? And there being a process for it. I, I think if you You'll always have those dark alleys where you can go down and get a gun that's got numbers scratched off it or, you know, removed by acid or whatever. That, you know, just human nature. You're never going to end that. Absolutely. You see, and that's what people have to realize. It's the, uh, an evil-minded person, and, and there are many lurking mm-hmm. among us, is not going to obey gun laws. Well, don't we already have laws saying you can't go out and shoot everybody you see? Right. You can't You can't drink and drive. Right. People are going to do... They're going to do it. If they right. want to do it, they're going to... They're still doing it. They're still right. drinking and driving and, and unfortunately getting into accidents and killing others. Yeah. The only people that are going to abide by the laws are law-abiding, law-abiding citizens, citizens that wouldn't be able to protect themselves or their families if the, if the need be. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can only attempt to make it harder for the people who have evil in their hearts to get the weapons. But uh, guys, we're, we're never going to stop it. It's just never going to stop. No. And it's not—it's not fair to take the right to protect your home and family away from the others that aren't doing evil. No, it, it's not. It's always the good that are penalized. You know, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe we should uh, adopt a legal open carry carry policy. They do say states with open carry have have lower well, crimes. You know, it, it makes you think twice. It does when you know everyone else out there has something. It's, it's the reason I don't I don't normally uh, carry uh, since since I moved down here and uh, everybody else has a gun. I'm just gonna go hide behind a wall and call nine one one. Okay, yeah. you got you guys duke this one out. I'm just gonna I'm gonna be the bystander calling the cops. You know, it's it's funny that you say that because when I first came down here originally, I, I wasn't carrying all the time. And I enjoyed not carrying. It was it's nice. It's a liability. Well, it's a liability. I didn't think if that was just nice not to have that weight on my side, not having to dress around <laughs> I it. I still have to go to the chiropractor. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't want to dress around. I, I didn't have to worry if I bent over, my gun popped out. And somebody yeah, my I, I basically, I live in gym shorts down here, so it's it's difficult to carry a weapon like that sometimes. Absolutely. And then, uh, but then what I realized also is everybody down here has guns. Yeah. So I don't want to be that guy that, God forbid, I need it, and I don't have it. I want it and never I, want I, to need I, it. I struggle with that sometimes. It's and and it's become more of a, a thought in my head lately. With with more shootings that occur, um, I guess you could say I'm rethinking my policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just don't want to have to do anything that would endanger my family or anybody. Uh, you know, if something's going on, if something goes down. I don't. I don't want to be there and having to make that decision if I have one of my children or my wife with me or something. It's. I guess it's it's personal choice, you know. In uh, 2017, the FBI conducted a study, 
and in the second phase uh, released the following information, and I, I, I just want to read this. The key findings, the 63 active shooters examined in this study did not appear to be uniform in any way such that they could be readily identified prior to attacking based on demographics alone. Active shooters take time to plan and prepare for the attack, with 77% of the subjects spending a week or longer planning their attack and 46% spending a week or longer actually preparing for the attack and pro procuring a means. The majority of the active shooters obtain their firearms legally, with only very small percentages obtaining the firearm illegally. The FBI could only verify that 25% of active shooters in the study had ever been diagnosed with a mental illness. Of those diagnosed, only three had been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. Active shooters were typically experiencing multiple stresses, an average of 3.6 separate stressors in the year before they were attacked. On average, each active shooter displayed four to five concerning behaviors over time that were observable to others around the shooter. The most frequently occurring concerning behaviors were related to the active shooter's mental health, problematic interpersonal interactions, and leakage of violent intent. For active shooters under 18, school peers and teachers were more likely to observe concerning behaviors than family members. For active shooters 18 years old and over, spouses, domestic partners were most likely to observe concerning behaviors. When concerning behavior was observed by others, the most common response was to communicate directly to the active shooter, 83% or do nothing 54% of the time. In 41% of the cases, the concerning behavior was reported to law enforcement. Therefore, just because concerning behavior was recognized does not necessarily mean that it was reported to law enforcement. In those cases where the active shooter's primary grievance could be identified, the most common grievances were related to an adverse interpersonal or employment action against the shooter, 49% of the time. In the majority of cases, 64% of the time, at least one of the victims was specifically targeted by the active shooter. You know, as police officers, when, when we engage in active shooter scenario, it's, it's time to take care of business. There's no time for planning. It's go time. The planning would have been done during training. Um, you know, when I was back in New York, we never trained for active shooting when I was there. It was something... It's unheard of. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't there. Um, unfortunately, when I came here, Florida, we started training. And the training over the years, it changed. You know, originally well, it evolves. It, absolutely. You know, the more the more scenarios happen, the more they the more they digested and absolutely they were able to. You have to you have to learn to roll with the punches. Yes. You know, originally I remember when we were trained, we'd go in four men, four men deep in the diamond formation, and then it was okay. Well, it's three men, then it's two men. Now, it's at the point now. If it's you, yeah. If if there's one guy and there were shots being fired, you go you go in. Mm -hmm. You go in. Now, now nobody's telling you to run in blindly but you're going as tactfully as possible yeah. and uh, try to neutralize the threat you know because every time you hear a gunshot there could be another victim yeah you know and when the scene is active a lot of times when you're going in uh, the priority is the shooter it's it's not the victims at that time you have to go in it's a cold uh, some people might feel that's a cold callous thing and it is but you're right you have to stop the carnage. Absolutely. Somebody else can go by and stop the bleeding. 
right after the fact. And, and unfortunately, that happens too, even when it's one of our own. Yes. Okay, even if it's one of our own, it's... If you're fortunate enough to have enough people, somebody yeah. can grab them and, and drag them out, one person. But, yeah, you've got you've to find where the bullets are coming from and exactly. stop that. Exactly. First order of end business. Of, end of the threat. All right. End the threat. Stop the carnage. That's the first order of business. Then the second order of business becomes attending to the wounded. Mm -hmm. And then with that, you have to prioritize. Triage. Yeah. yeah. And you, know, you may have somebody that's screaming, help me, help me, and you, you can't. No. You know, you, you, you assess and you look and say, okay, yeah, it's bad, but... I've got somebody over here who's been shot in the neck or shot in the chest, and you have to prioritize. You know, now once the treatment is done, that's when the investigation begins, and now you start to try to put the pieces together and find out the reasoning why. Right. Yeah. What the public doesn't realize that when these officers are lucky enough to come out of this scenario unscathed, physically, okay, unharmed. Nobody, physically. Physically. Yeah. Nobody sees the mental scars. No. Um, you know, in, in this line of work, I, I, I've seen things that, you know, they're ingrained in my mind, okay? And anytime I think of them, I, I can remember every homicide scene that I've went to. Every, it's just things. You can close your eyes and you're there. You, you can do it. Um, and now these officers that respond to these mass shootings where they're children involved and it's just it's just the carnage it, it takes no effect and earlier today i spoke to uh, a friend of mine a colleague and a friend of mine who was at the airport shooting 2017 january okay and he was there after the fact he wasn't there while it was active and i, I myself had responded to after the fact um the suspect was already in custody but we were talking today, and I told him what I was going to be talking about, and he brought up the story. What he did was he helped, uh, he assisted the FBI in reviewing the video surveillance of the incident at the airport. And he rep repeatedly viewed these different images. And one image that he, he told me, and, and I know it bothers him tremendously, there was an elderly couple. The husband was 90 years old, wife was 84, and they were going on a cruise. They flew in to go on a cruise to celebrate his 90th birthday. And he was looking at the video just the uh, few minutes before the shooting started, and he described that you could tell they were carefree, they were happy, they were going to celebrate. She was being pushed by a sky cap in a wheelchair, and the next minute, she was gone. She was gone, and the, the husband sat by her side in a wheelchair for hours next to his wife who was covered in the tarp and refused to leave until the FBI at one point, you know, there was work to be done. Yeah. Seeing how to be processed. And this is just one of the images. And, you you, you know, things change in, in a heartbeat. And you, you would just watch this guy. He lost his world. Yeah. He he figured, he's 90. 90 they, years they old. Had, they had to be married for a considerable length of time. Yeah. 84, 84 years old. And uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. Just yeah. a real They're heartbreaking story. On a, on, a, on a magnificent journey for them. And then it ends like that. Yeah. Before it even starts. So, Hey, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, please spread the, spread the word. Uh, tell your friends. And uh, if you'd like to get on the action, give us a call. You know, tonight's topic is death. It's a part of life. From the day we're born, we live to die. It's, it's normal at one time or another we all face it, whether it's a pet or a family member. As police officers, dealing with death becomes as routine as anything else. Some deaths are natural due to illness. Some are accidents some are suicides or homicides and uh, death by your own hands and sometimes both are justified unfortunately 
My first experience with death was in the police academy. You know, when I was 15, my grandmother passed away, but it... Yeah, I had it, an uncle who had died before when I was younger, and it doesn't... I don't know. It's different. Yeah. It's definitely different, and I remember... I think it's more sanitized, you know, because you just, you just... You know somebody passed, you go to see him at the funeral home, and... And that's it. Yeah. You don't really... Uh, it, it, it's, you know, depending on how close you are with that relative, well, it affects you. Some people, right. you know, I've had yeah. people that are... My family, unfortunately, that passed away. I was like, oh, sorry to hear. And, okay, but and then there's others that really hit you hard and cry. Absolutely. You know, in the academy, it was during the uh, police science curriculum of the academy. It was the day before we came in, and the uh, police instructor said, hey, tomorrow you guys are going to view autopsies. At bring the, in the VIX. Yeah, <laughs> bring in the VIX. That's right. <laughs> you, you're jumping ahead of me. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, he said, tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to go view autopsies, and right after that you're going for meal. So I was like, yeah, yeah great. That's great. Yeah, who wants to eat? But like you mentioned, he said, uh, little tip, bring some Vicks and put it underneath your, your nostrils so it masks the smell uh, of death. And uh, the smell of death is something you smell it once and you remember it for the any time after that, you know what you're dealing with. Exactly, yeah. And uh, you know, I remember we got to the Bellevue Morgue and the first stop was the meat freezer. You know, and you go in there and we were 30 recruits. And they had one wall that was a dedicated freezer. You know, right. it had all these different compartments and uh, with rollout trays. And it was like being in show and tell. And, and we were nervous. You know, you didn't know what to expect. But uh, one thing you noticed, the Vicks worked like a charm. You didn't smell a thing. It was yeah. like, hey, this, this, this stuff is good. My, my instructor knows what he's talking about. And I remember they pulled out the first body and happened to be a... Uh, a woman, maybe in her mid-20s, early 30s, completely nude except for the toe tag on her foot that had all the information, you know, about the body. And, uh, you know, you, you looked at it, and I remember somebody in the back saying something uh, very inappropriate, and you can use your imagination. I won't, I won't get into it There's always here. one in the crowd. There's always one. After that, we went into the actual autopsy room. And the first thing you notice when you went into the autopsy room is that uh, even with the Vicks, it smells. Yeah. You know, it strong, smells. You can smell strong, it. And you say, you know, thank God you had it on. Um, and then I remember that there were tables. I believe there were like four steel tables that were laid out, and each one had a body on it. And next to those tables, there was another tray with all the tools with the trade, you know, uh, mallets, saws, buckets, and all that. And, uh, you know, some, some, of us, some of us were fighting for a spot in the back, and, and some of us were fighting Fight for a spot in the, in the front. Well, <laughs> also a spot in the front because you wanted to see it. Mm. And the whole thing was surreal. I mean, the body itself, I remember when I was watching the autopsy, it was an elderly male, and the body itself seemed larger than life. And the first cut that the uh, attendant made with the scalpel was, you know, to the forehead from ear to ear. And you, you watch it in amazement, and, and I remember he took the skin and pulled it back over the, over the head, all the layers of skin, and, you could, and it almost seemed like a mask. That's something you see every day. Yeah, it, it seemed like a mask, and it was just like, uh, wow. And then the next thing they did was they took the buzzsaw and they took the top of the skull off, right, and then reached in and pulled out the brain. And it was like, oh, you know. And then, then everything else was performed in robotic fashion you know they take out all the organs they examine them they weigh them they look for any discrepancies there's an ch actual chart of what each organ is supposed to weigh in a n normal person and if there are any discrepancies then they examine it more did you have to view i'm trying to remember i i don't think 
at the time when I went in in 1990, I was at that point we were the largest class to go through the academy at that time. How many were you? I don't remember. Because it was, I know it we, was a big group. It we, was under Dinkins, uh, the Safe Street, Safe City program. We went in my class was also one of the big ones. Uh, I think we were 2,200 and change. Mm. You know, it's funny because when I came out here. Was talking to one of the guys, and he was telling me, "Oh, yeah, we had a very big academy class uh, this year." I said, "Really? How many?" Oh, I think there were about thirty-eight. I was like, thirty-eight. I had I had thirty something in my company. I, I said we were twenty-two hundred. Uh, I want to say twenty-seven, maybe twenty-seven, okay. twenty-seven, twenty-eight hundred. I'm not sure. I don't remember, but I don't I don't know that we got to sit there and watch. Well, I know. I think they may have stopped it at some time. I'm I'm not sure. So let me ask you this, because after we watched the autopsies, because we way behaved ourselves so well, we got to go to the morgue museum. That I definitely was not privileged to Okay, see. because that you would remember. The morgue museum was, I think it was on the second floor of Bellevue Hospital, and it's something that the public knew nothing about. It wasn't open to the public. It was only open to uh, police officers coming through the academy at the time and visiting medical dignitaries. And I remember when we went in there, the first thing we were told, like, like school kids, keep your hands in your pockets and don't touch anything. And there were things in jaws, abnormal things in jaws that the normal person w wouldn't believe. Stuff you didn't expect I mean, to there, see. There were things, you know, the question was, well, how did they get half of these things? You know, <laughs> isn't, isn't somebody wondering, you know, what happened to... Uh, <laughs> Some of these body parts that were in Are these like jaws? big jaws, like Frankenstein's yes, lab? Yes, the, the glass jaws. jaws with the lid? There was, uh, God, I remember there was uh, different dismembered parts. I, I mean, there were women's breasts in there. There were um, women that were dismembered, dismembered. And, and ended up in jars. I think it was, I'm not sure the year, I think I don't know if it was the 1975, there was a plane crash. And one of the jars, there was actually half of a face. And it was amazing to see because the half face, you could see the nose and, and the mouth, and you could see the teeth. And the hair on his face. Which is perfectly sheared in half. Yeah. And oh. that you could see the hair. He had some growth. And it was it was unbelievable. But one thing that I'll always remember and I'll never forget, it's almost like a public uh, safety announcement. If you're ever in the subway station, okay, that third rail has about 625 volts of electricity. And some guy thought it was a good idea. <clears throat> and he must have had a very good stream because he was able to go from the platform and make contact with the third rail. He reached the third rail. He reached the third rail, and unfortunately for him, it completed a circuit. What did he, I think you left out. What did he reach the third rail with? With the urine. Oh, he was with, urinating. With, yeah, okay. he was urinating, and it, I guess you know it can conduct electricity. Yeah. Because the electricity arced back, and in the jaw was his penis, thumb, and two fingers. So if you're ever in the subway. <laughs> did he? Did he? Did he actually survive, or that just that just fell off? That we don't. That was the electricity took it. I, I'm, sh you know, he could have survived. Mm. Whether or not he wanted to survive after that that's, is another that's story. Brutal, that's a brutal one. Yeah, that's another story. Um, yeah, we didn't see that. I don't. We had a EMT in our in my company, and she had uh, she had a thick thick photo album. She she'd been an EMT for I don't know maybe five eight years, right. and uh, she had quite a collection of Polaroids. Uh, suicides and different things, uh, people who jumped from a building and, and hit the spiked railing fence and then continued on to another building and they were just, bodies were just, you know, intestines <coughs> strewn across uh, from one building to the other. Oh, yeah, it's amazing that the things you see and, um, you know, you, you handle things in almost robotic fashion. You know, you, you got to go to work. 
Yeah. This is your job. You got to you got to deal with it. You got to handle it. Down. it. Yeah, you, you do. Um, you know, in my career, I've seen people that have jumped off twenty-three story buildings. Oh, that was that happened a lot with us. You yeah, know, we had tall stories. Sure, uh, the, to, the know, projects, tall, tall buildings. Absolutely, so people always take the easy solution. I say an easy solution, but people take the plunge off of them uh, a lot of times. Yeah, and you know, it, each one is different. Um, there was one time we were we were there, and I'm standing up looking at the building, and the detective comes up to me and goes, "You see the two streaks?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, I, "That's when the guy decided letting go was a bad idea." Yeah, unfortunately, it's. Uh, you know, tried when to, you, you tried to grab the hold yeah. of the wall, and it just kept going down. Yeah, when you try to change your mind in the middle, it yeah. uh, usually doesn't work out too well. You know, no. remember as a uh, young police officer, one of my first experiences with death on patrol, and I want to explain how radio mo- it's RMP works, radio, radio motor patrol. Yeah. Two people assigned to the car. I know, I know you know how it works, but for everybody out there who's listening that doesn't. There's an operator and recorder, and you switch every four hours. The first half, somebody drives, he's the operator. The other person records, and recording entails taking all the police reports. Uh, if there are any arrests to be made, you get stuck with them if your partner doesn't want them. It's just the way it was explained. The Being the recorder is the dirty part of the tour. And if you're lucky, nothing happens when you're the recorder and you get to switch. And that includes... Uh, dealing with death, with the dead people. If the bodies have to be searched, the recorder has to search it. Well, on this particular day, it was in July, and we get a call for a uh, possible DOA inside a basement apartment. And when, we, when my partner and I pulled up on the scene, we knew it was bad when we saw the sergeant's operator. In New York, the sergeants had drivers. The sergeant's operator was outside spraying Lysol. Outside. Outside, outside before we even got in. Nice and ripe. Luckily for me... I was the operator. <laughs> and as we come into this basement, you, you just get hit with this this stench. It was like a blanket. I mean, it, it was horrible. It's like walking into a wall. Yeah, it, it was horrible. And uh, it was an elderly man. He'd been dead in there for about three weeks. Okay, in, a, in the summer, in summertime, July, yeah. summertime with no ventilation, there, no air conditioning. And he was uh, only clad in his underwear, and I remember he had a shirt, and he was somehow or another he fell over he was over a box hunched over a box and I remember I took out my rubber gloves and I gladly gave them to my partner with a smile on my face <laughs> I was like here you go you know better, better him than me and now it was time to search the buyer we searched the buyers if there were any valuables they had to be safeguarded if there was any jewelry and as he started to move this gentleman's arm it sounded as though it was starting to fall off oh yeah and at that point the sergeant made a command decision and said hey listen Whatever he's got, when the morgue guys come... We'll find it then. Yeah, find it then, boom. And we left, and they got a foot post. They had to sit with the body. The funny thing, it was uh, ooh, about three weeks later, I was working with somebody else, and it was in August, and we get a very similar call. Landlord hasn't seen his tenant in about three weeks, and he knows he's sick. And we pull up, and the uh, first thing I, I want to know is, uh, well, are there, are there any dogs in the apartment? And he said, yeah, there's a dog in there. And he didn't have keys to the apartment the window was open the bathroom window was open I said hey listen could you do me a favor if you know the dog can you go in there and put the dog away so he can enter and he said yeah so he climbs through the window and he comes running out a minute too late and you could tell he was holding his breath he's like <laughs> he said hey the body's in the kitchen it stinks in there the body's in the kitchen so me and my partner go in and there's dog crap and piss all over the place and we're walking through trying to not step in anything and it stinks in there 
And sure enough, I see the body laying face down in the kitchen, and his pants are down almost to around his knees. And as I walk in, you can see for some reason he had the four jets on the stove. There was nothing on it, thank God, but the jets were burning. And, you know, when people die, they lose control of their bodily functions. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at him, he obviously did. And I was like, oh, great. Unfortunately for me, I was the recorder. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I was the recorder, and I, I looked at this guy. His hands were all blown up, and I was calling out his name and getting no response. So at that point... I called to the sergeant. We had the sergeant respond in the EMS, let them know that we have a DOA. There was no phone in the apartment, so I went upstairs to use the neighbors to call the medical examiner. And while I was up there, the sergeant and the EMTs respond. I'm up there a minute or two giving the uh, medical examiner all the information. And all of a sudden, the star- sergeant starts screaming at, uh, for me. He said, get down here. Get down here and buy this man a cup of coffee. And I go downstairs, and this guy is now sitting up. And his stomach, there was a huge gaping wound on his stomach that was turning black. He was actually rotting. Just as the EMTs were about to pronounce him dead, they saw something. He was a diabetic. Oh, so it was like a diabetic coma. Yeah, and they were able to, I guess, shoot him up with insulin, whatever it is, and he was drinking orange juice. And uh, Holy cow. Yeah, so it it was amazing. It's something I never heard the end of. The following day at roll call, (laughs) we're standing at roll call, and the sergeant uh, makes an announcement. He says, uh, listen, if anybody gets any DOAs today, just call Dr. Lerner or Dr. Caulfield, and they'll, comp- they'll come pronounce him dead for you. And I was like, great. And then as I was walking out, one of the old-timers says to me, hey, kid, next time give him the kick test. The kick <laughs> test? Next time kick him. <laughs> you had Would you even responded to that? Hey. I've never heard that. St- I've never heard a story like that either. That's Oh, it was. It was that's incredible. Yeah. Anything similar? Yeah, any experiences? Um, yeah, we had plenty of plenty of people pass away that we had to go. Uh, you know, I was a foot post, had to sit on, uh, sit, have dinner with dead bodies all the time. Right. Um, sometimes we'd get in there, same thing. Summer, cooking in an apartment uh, for a couple of days, and you'd get in there, and either a cat was nibbling at the body, or uh, they just they looked like they were mummified. I had one that looked like he was a mummy. Um, you know, that's uh, I, I don't I don't know that I have anything any of the, any crazy DOAs. Uh, you know, there was one thing I did was silly. Um, we would always burn coffee grinds or something to try the and old, knock the, the smell out of grinds, the uh, right. right. Yeah. Well, uh, we were on one job and um, couldn't find any coffee. So me being the guy that thinks on his feet, I get a dish towel and I used to be a smoker then, so I had a lighter and I go into the bathroom and I light the dish towel on fire and stick it into the tub. You know, got the smoke knocked the smell out of the apartment. Well, I didn't move the shower curtains far enough away. And the shower curtains got caught up on fire. And then we were almost, we almost had a fully involved fire in the apartment. Uh, the only thing that saved me was I, I was able to get it, get the fire out with the shower head. And uh, my sergeant, she come and told me, she's like, if we had to call FD, I would have beat the living crap out of you. <laughs> <laughs> and she never let me forget that one. Uh, yeah. Even years after when, you know, we would, texting and she was remember that time you almost burnt the apartment down i'm like oh yeah there are a lot of things we do on this job that uh, make us famous <laughs> with, with our <laughs> with our peers you know unfortunately this job it's real you know what, what we do is real it's portrayed on television it's cops and robbers and it's fun and crimes are solved and 45 minutes homicides everybody knows how to do our job it's they've great seen it done on tv absolutely but you know in this job too um we get hurt you know, we, we get hurt in the line of duty. Uh, 
shot, stabbed, mm-hmm. and un- unfortunately killed. Um, you know, it's, it's just part of the job, and it, it comes with the territory. When we sign on, we write a blank check, okay? Yeah. And we don't know when that check is going to be cashed, but we, we sign on knowing that at some point you can pay the ultimate price. Yeah, the odds are good on that. I mean, you know, yeah. we're, we're the ones, bullets are coming out of a building, we're the, we're the ones running into the building. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you so know, my, some, my, Somebody's in a crowd swinging a knife. Yeah. We're the ones that got to go after them. Absolutely. You know, in the first, my first experience with somebody that I actually knew being killed in the line of duty happened back in uh, 1987. It was one of my training officers who was uh, Louis Miller, Detective Louis Miller, who's also known as the commander. And uh, he had 34 years on the job when he was killed in the line of duty. He spent the last 15 as a training officer. He trained over 2,000 recruits. And one thing about him I remember, um, if you had a foot post, he, he would show up at your foot post. You know, you used to get two of the rookies would get a car tour with an FTO. Everybody had to get a certain amount of car tours. And if you had a foot post, inevitably he would show up on your post and say, hey, the sergeant said you were doing a good job. Um, and he'd give you a lollipop or, or a candy bar. But what I remember about him is my first day as a rookie, there were three squads. And the two squads, we were waiting in a parking lot. And the first training officer came in, pulled it in the first squad. Hey, guys, you know, welcome, welcome to the precinct. And they went upstairs. It was very jovial, very friendly. Same thing with the second squad. Well, when Louis Miller came down, he, he was an imposing figure. He was a big man. He came down with his hat squarely on his head. And he called us into formation, you know. Uh, had us line up, dress right, dress, and uh, left face, march us up the stairs. and Just like the academy. Yeah, and I was like, God, oh, this is not supposed to be, in my mind, this is not supposed to be happening. We just did this. We're done with this. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was just an amazing guy. He demanded respect for the rank. And I remember when the sergeant came in, uh, he had us jump to attention and salute and all a bit. But, uh, you know, I can go on for hours about him. And I won't because we don't have much time. But... Uh, with him, the day he was killed, he was working in the 7 That was the precinct that he worked. He was always 7 John. And there was a call for, uh, I don't know if it was a burglary or home invasion or robbery. The stories vary. But in any event, he showed up and he took the elevator to the fourth floor. This was supposed to be happening on the fifth floor. And he sent his rookies, and he used to call us all his shark patrol. That's, that's what we were known as, shark. his shark patrol. Uh, he sent the people that he was trained to the sixth floor, he was in the elevator with another detective, this guy, Mark Delpino. When the elevator's doors opened up, unfortunately, the bad guy was there and a shootout ensued. Mm. Okay, and Louis, Louis was mortally wounded but returned fire, and, and Mark was also shot. And uh, one of the perpetrators was killed and the other one got away. He, he was subsequently arrested. But it, it was a sad day. I mean, this guy, um, and anybody, anybody who knows him, if anybody's listening, they know he, it's the way, as crazy as it sounds, it's the way he wanted to go. He, he was just one of those guys. He always made sure we did everything tactically sound and every, everything was correct, but he was, he was unbelievable. What I remember was when they brought his briefcase back to the precinct the day he was killed, when they opened it up, it was filled with lollipops and chocolate, chocolate bars to give out to the... Uh, to the rookies. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a shame. Um, community lost a great man, so did the police department. And what I did was for myself, I kind of uh, followed his path. I kind of based my, the way I do things on, on the way he did things. You, you could be a homeless guy on the corner, 
or a neurosurgeon or a politician of the President of the United States, and he gave everybody the same respect. <coughs> you know, every, yeah. Everybody loved everybody's him. Everybody's a human being. Yeah, he was uh, an amazing guy. I was blessed to, blessed to have him as a training officer. There are few people that make such an impression on you yeah. as a police officer, and uh, like I said, I was blessed to, to have him. That's a hard smack with reality, too, when that happens, yeah. especially the first time. Uh, it, it never gets easier. No, it, it doesn't. You, you, I don't even know if you become numb to it, but uh, there's a lot of things you get numb to. But I don't think losing uh, a fellow officer. I don't think that's anything anybody ever takes lightly. Yeah, no. You always feel that. You feel that deep stab inside. Yeah, some hurt more than others. You mm-hmm. know, whenever I heard it, I always the first thing I hear: an officer killed in line of duty. First thing that goes through my mind is, I hope it's nobody I know. Yeah. You know, it's bad enough, but it's worse when you know somebody. Um, well, Fred, the time has actually flown by. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to especially thank you, Fred, for thank you. stepping up to the plate. This is great fun. I hope I can do it again sometime. Uh, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. I'd, I'd love to have you back. Um, and if there's anybody else that you know that would be interested in coming on, so give my information. I, I do. I have somebody, a uh, guy I met down here. You come down here and you meet cops from New York. It's crazy. But uh, I, I did speak to somebody today, and I'm going to give you his information. And uh, you can get in touch with him and give him the invite. Have him come down. I'm sure he's got some really good stories. Nice guy. Good. I definitely look forward to hearing from him. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and being part of this adventure. We're all in together. We're all on the same team. God bless everyone, and hope to see you back next Thursday at 7 p.m. from the Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida. God bless.